Hello and welcome to Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. In today's episode, I'm joined by autoimmune expert, Dr. Tom O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien is going to unpack autoimmune disease for us and reveal the impact that gluten has on health. He explains what autoimmune diseases are, why they occur, and the common dietary lifestyle and environmental factors that trigger the immune system. Dr. O'Brien also dispels myths associated with autoimmunity and how to overcome autoimmune disorders naturally. Dr. Tom O'Brien is an internationally recognized and admired speaker who specializes in food sensitivities, environmental toxins, and the development of autoimmune diseases. He's considered a Sherlock Holmes for chronic disease and believes that recognizing and addressing the underlying mechanisms that activate the immune system is the roadmap towards better health. Dr. O'Brien is a teaching faculty member for the Institute for Functional Medicine and the National University of Health Sciences. He has trained and certified tens of thousands of practitioners around the world in advanced understanding of the impact of wheat sensitivity and the development of autoimmune diseases. He's the author of the best-selling books, The Autoimmune Fix and You Can Fix Your Brain, and the founder of the website, thedoctor.com. Dr. O'Brien is also the visionary behind the Gluten Summit, which brings together 29 of the world's top experts on the topics of gluten-related disorders. Hi, Dr. Tom. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you also. Now, today you're going to be unpacking autoimmune disease for us and explaining to our listeners what they need to know about autoimmune conditions, including how to identify autoimmunity and restore health in the body. But before we get started, please can you tell us a bit about yourself and what led you to specialize in autoimmune disorders? Oh, okay. Don't tell my daughter that I said this, but we have to go back 42 years when my ex and I were trying to get pregnant and we weren't being successful. And I um, was an intern at the time in Chicago and I called the seven most famous holistic doctors I'd ever heard of and asked them, what do you do? And they all told me what they do for infertility. I put a program together and we were pregnant in six weeks. We lived in married housing on campus and my neighbors had been through artificial insemination and asked if I'd work with them. And I said, well, I don't really know what I'm doing, but (laughs) I don't think it'll harm you in any way. Sure. And they were pregnant in three months. And as you know, when you go through fertility centers, you're spending tens of thousands of pounds or dollars Mm -hmm. trying to be successful. And they had done all that and they were pregnant in three months. And so now we're four months pregnant or so and just ready to sing to all of our friends and just as happy as can be in the pregnancy. And our friend's sister who couldn't get pregnant would drive down from Wisconsin to Chicago to see me. And I was treating people out of my dormitory room before I was having patients in clinic. You're not supposed to do that, but I did. And there's not much in medicine that's all or every, but this was every couple that had some problems with hormone-related conditions, whether it was fertility, recurrent miscarriages, premature ejaculation, low testosterone. It didn't matter. Every single couple had as a component Mm -hmm. of what was causing their problem They were eating foods that they didn't know were a problem for them. 
And so they were eating foods that were activating the immune system, trying to protect them from whatever the food was, creating inflammation. Anytime your immune system gets activated, it does its work by creating inflammation. Inflammation is not bad for you. It's really good for you. Excessive inflammation is a problem. And, you know, your immune system is the armed forces in your body. It's the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. Uh, it's there to protect you. We call them IgA, IgG, IgE, IgM. But when you explain to your patients that the immune system is the armed forces in your body, they begin to understand when you say, so, Mrs. Patient, your immune system's activated right now. What's it trying to protect you from? So the premise that has developed over time, well, since the early 1919 when uh, Rockefeller came in in the U.S. and started emphasizing the importance of pharmaceuticals and medicine really turned from homeopathy to allopathic medicine. Ever since then, the concept has been shut down the immune system when it's active. And let's help the patient with their symptoms by shutting down the immune system. And that may be necessary for some temporary symptomatic relief. You have to work on symptomatic relief, but that is not going to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that, but we ignore the fact that you don't reverse rheumatoid arthritis by taking anti-inflammatory drugs. You don't reverse MS by taking the drugs. If you're lucky, you reduce the symptoms, but it's still progressives and you have a shortened life. So the paradigm that most of us were taught in our medical educations is wrong. It's a component of treating an autoimmune condition. Of course, you want the patient to feel better and reduce their symptomatology or they're not going to come back to see you. So you have to be helping them feel better, but you also have to deal with why is the immune system trying to protect you? What's it trying to protect you from? Mm -hmm. And we know Alan Ebringer at King's College was the guy. Oh my gosh, I still remember this. This was in January, 1978. I'm in my first genetics class in my medical education. And the professor comes in one day really excited, holding a paper and just holding this paper. It was a new graduate student from King's College in London who had just published a paper on a term called molecular mimicry. And he was talking about if you carry the gene HLA-B27 and if you get a Klebsiella pneumonia infection, you're at high risk of developing ankylosing spondylitis. And there was a what? That the immune system trying to protect you from Klebsiella could attack your own joints and you develop ankylosing spondylitis. And that was 1978. And that was my introduction in my first year of my medical education on molecular mimicry, that the immune system trying to protect you from this Klebsiella infection in this case, because the antibodies to go after Klebsiella, they're like special forces. They have high-powered rifles, and they're going after what has been identified as a threat, Klebsiella pneumoniae. They're all in the bloodstream, and your bloodstream is just a highway. I mean, everything's going in the same direction, but there's no lanes to traffic. Everything's bouncing around in there like bumper cars at the circus. 
how did the antibodies know to attack the Klebsiella only? Because they look for what I refer to as orange vests. They look for orange vests. What's that? It's the protein structure of the Klebsiella. They're looking for amino acid sequences in the Klebsiella that are unique to Klebsiella pneumoniae. And when they see that amino acid sequence, I'm going to say AABCD, they're going through the bloodstream looking for AABCD. When they see AABCD, they fire their chemical bullets, the cytokines, to attack the Klebsiella. Or they grab it and they hold on to it so it can't do any damage until it's escorted out with the antibody. The problem is AABCD is also the same amino acid component in the structure of the collagen of your joints. So the antibodies to Klebsiella may, if you have a genetic vulnerability, in this case HLA-B27, may go after the collagen of your joints and you develop ankylosing spondylitis. That's molecular mimicry. So the patient comes in and says, I've been diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. And you say, oh, oh, that's sorry to hear that. Because you know that's a death sentence, and the average lifespan's two to two and a half years after diagnosis, usually. But now you say, well, why is your immune system attacking the joints? You may give them something to help them function better and reduce their inflammation, like change their diet, have a more of an anti-inflammatory diet, some anti-inflammatory nutraceuticals. But why is the immune system attacking the joints? And if it's ankylosing spondylitis, you know to look for Klebsiella pneumonia infections. So you can do a sputum sample, a stool sample. And we find Klebsiella in the stool very, very often, unfortunately. But now you know what to look for. And then you deal with the infection. And when you deal with the triggers activating the immune response, and you reduce those triggers, whether it's gluten with celiac disease or Klebsiella with ankylosing spondylitis, when you reduce the triggers, the immune system calms down. Mm -hmm. And the scientists say you arrest the development of autoimmune diseases. And it doesn't matter if it's MS or psoriasis or lupus. It doesn't matter what they're diagnosed with. The mechanism is similar in terms of the investigation the healthcare practitioner has to do. Thank you, Dr. Tom. That was a very extensive explanation for our practitioners and clinicians who might be listening. But for our general public that might not be familiar with autoimmune conditions, can you please explain what autoimmunity is and why autoimmune disorders occur? Oh, yes, of course. Autoimmunity is when your immune system is attacking your own tissue. Now, it's normal to have antibodies to your own tissue but it's not normal to have excessive amount of antibodies to your own tissue. For example, if a person has a problem with their thyroid, now, for example, your thyroid is the organ in your body. It's the thermostat on the wall in your home. At nighttime, when you go to sleep, you turn the thermostat down so it's a little cooler. Everyone's asleep and under the blankets. So you're saving fuel in the wintertime by turning the thermostat down. And then most thermostats nowadays, automatically you've programmed them that they start to go back up again before people wake up. So the house is nice and warm. And in the body, that's called your metabolism. How hot are your cells working? How much fuel are they burning? 
That's why when you have a thyroid problem, you feel sluggish. You know, things are not moving the way they should most of the time. That's the most common thyroid imbalance. So your thyroid controls your thermostat, your metabolism of every cell in your body. And what happens when you have a thyroid problem, you go to the doctor, he's going to do a blood test. And part of that blood test may look for antibodies to the thyroid to see if you have an autoimmune disease to your thyroid. And that's a good comprehensive test to do. Now, if you have normal levels of antibodies, okay, there's no autoimmune mechanism going on. But if you have elevated levels of antibodies to your thyroid, well, that's not good. Now, why is that not good? Because there's a normal reference range. Here in the U.S., the scale for the laboratories is different in the U.K., but there's a normal reference range. And in the U.S., it's usually below 42. If you're below 42 in the antibodies to your thyroid, that's the normal range. Well, why is it ever normal to have antibodies to your own tissue? In this example, the thyroid or to your brain or to your kidneys. When is it normal to have antibodies at all? Well, it's normal because Mrs. Patient, you have an entire new body every few years. Every cell in your body regenerates, every cell. Well, how does that happen? Your immune system has to get rid of the old and damaged cells to make room for new cells. So when you do a test for antibodies to your thyroid, if you're in the normal reference range, you're making as many new thyroid cells as you're losing. It's in the normal reference range. That's good. But when you have elevated antibodies to your thyroid, in this example, you're killing off more thyroid cells than you're making. That's a problem. And you don't feel when that's going on in your body until you've killed off so many cells. Now you don't have good thyroid function anymore and you don't feel good. And you go to the doctor and they diagnose you with a thyroid problem. Or if it's your skin, they may diagnose you with a psoriasis problem. Or if it's your brain, they may diagnose you with an MS problem. My point is there's a normal reference range of antibodies to all of your tissue where it's normal because you're killing off as many cells as you're making. That's normal. But when you have elevated antibodies, you're killing off more cells than you're making. That's not okay. And eventually you get a diagnosis of MS or rheumatoid arthritis, or Hashimoto's thyroid, or psoriasis, or vitiligo, where you get white patches in your skin, or alopecia, you're losing your hair. It just depends in terms of what autoimmune mechanism you develop. It depends on two things. It depends on your genes, your genetics, and it depends on, here's a geek term, the antecedents, meaning how you live your life. So if you live in a house with mold and you're breathing a little mold all the time, 24-7, and you say, ah, it's not too bad, I can live with that. No, you can't. Your immune system is going to fight that mold. And that may be the environmental trigger that has set you up to develop these antibodies to the mold, which then, because of molecular mimicry, might attack your brain tissue. And here comes cognitive decline or depression or anxiety. It just depends on your genetics as to where the symptoms will manifest. Thank you for that very fantastic explanation. Autoimmune diseases have increased dramatically over the past decade. 
and are predicted to continue rising year after year. Why do you think this is? Oh, that's very true. The British Society of Immunology just published a paper last year and said every autoimmune disease is going up four to nine percent a year. Wow. Every year. Just depends on which one you're talking about. This is very, very dangerous. And the question of why, it's really clear as to why. So to give you the answer to that question, I have to give you some background information. There is a man, his name is Professor Alessio Fasano. He's at Harvard, and he's a professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School, a professor of nutrition, Harvard School of Public Health, the director of the Celiac Research Center at Harvard, the director of mucosal immunology at Harvard. That's the lining of your lungs, the lining of your gut, the lining of your brain, and the chief of pediatric gastroenterology at Mass General Harvard. This guy has five titles. Any one title is a lifelong goal for someone at the top of their game. He's got five. We really think he's going to win the Nobel Prize one day. We truly do. Because as Professor Fasano and his team at Harvard that identified in 1997 the mechanism by which this thing called leaky gut occurs. And they've been writing about it now for almost 25 years how leaky gut manifests. And this is what they're teaching. What I'm about to tell you is what they're teaching at Harvard Medical School. So all of the new graduates coming out are going to have all this information that many of our doctors who've been out for 10 years or 20 years were never exposed to unless they read the journals after they're out in practice. And that's difficult to find time to do. Mm -hmm. So Professor Fasano identifies what he calls the perfect storm in the development of chronic inflammatory diseases. So let me tell you that the Center for Disease Control told us last year that 14 of the top 15 causes of death in the world today are chronic inflammatory diseases. 14 of 15. The only one that's not is unintentional injuries. Wow. Like an accident, everything else is a chronic inflammatory disease. Diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, autoimmune diseases, they're all chronic inflammatory diseases. And this is a really important thing for everyone to understand because if you want to be healthy, if you want to be fully functional in your elder years, you know, so your body's not worn out and you can hardly get around, you have to understand that it's inflammation that kills off your cells little by little by little. And as you kill off more cells than you're making, you have less function. And always, let me say that differently, always the mechanism for killing off cells is inflammation. So when you understand that basic concept, then the rational question to ask is how do I reduce the inflammation in my body for me and my family? How do I live a less inflammatory lifestyle? So with that background, 14 of the top 15 causes of death are chronic inflammatory diseases. With that background, let's look at the message from Professor Fasano. He tells us that the perfect storm in the development of chronic inflammatory diseases, meaning what's going to take you down eventually in your life, the perfect storm has five parts to it. The first part, pillar number one, are your genes. 
Now, you can't do much about your genes. That's the deck of cards that you were given in this lifetime. You can't change your genes. And sometimes doctors talk about turning off genes. You can't turn off genes because genes operate on a dimmer switch. And the goal is to dim down the genes of inflammation and turn up the genes of anti-inflammation, just like you turn the lights up and down in a room with a dimmer switch. And so the goal is to live a lifestyle where you're dimming down the inflammation genes and turning up the anti-inflammation genes. That's pillar number one, your genes. Pillar number two, environmental triggers. What we're exposed to, both from the outside environment and what's already inside our bodies, stored metals like mercury and lead and petrochemicals and phthalates and petroleum products, they're inside our body, but they're still environmental triggers that are affecting your cells, the environmental triggers actually have their hands on the dimmer switch of your genes. So if you want to turn down the genes of inflammation, you have to reduce the inflammatory environmental triggers that you're exposed to. You can't drink Coca-Cola. You can't live in a house with mold because you're breathing it all day and it's turning up the genes of inflammation so your immune system can protect you from the dangers of mold. So when you understand that environmental triggers activate or calm down your genes and you want to activate the genes of anti-inflammation and calm down the genes of inflammation, when you understand that concept, then you start asking the question, what environmental triggers am I being exposed to in terms of foods and the air quality? Indoor air pollution is much worse than outdoor air pollution in most places because of the building materials and the fabric chemicals, Scotchgard and flame retardant chemicals in our sleeping clothing and all of that. So you start asking the question, how am I exposed to environmental triggers activating my genes of inflammation. It's a little geeky to think this way, but when you start thinking this way, you start finding all of the little things that you didn't know were a problem for you and your family. Storing food in plastic containers the next day, the chemicals in the plastic used to mold plastic called phthalates, those chemicals get into your food. Now you're eating leftover food that's full of phthalates. And there's no evidence that the amount of phthalates you're exposed to from the leaching of the phthalates out of the plastic containers, there's no evidence that that amount of phthalates is toxic to humans. There's absolutely no evidence for that. But the phthalates get in your body, and for many people, they accumulate in your body. They pool up. And when that happens, now you get toxic levels of phthalates. I'm going to give you a study here to give you an example of this, and then I'll come back to the five pillars of Professor Fasano. So, so far, we've got genetics, the first pillar, and environmental triggers, the second pillar. Now, here's a study that came out of Chicago in 2016. They took 346 pregnant women in the eighth month of pregnancy, and they checked their urine for these phthalates chemicals used to mold plastic. 
and they got the totals for each pregnant woman, and they put them in four categories, the lowest amount of phthalates, the next, the third, and the highest amount of phthalates. They put them in four categories. And then they followed the offspring of these pregnancies for seven years. When the children turned seven years old, they did Wexler IQ tests on the official IQ test. And what did they find? Every child whose mother was in the highest level of phthalates in urine in the eighth month of pregnancy compared to the children whose mothers were in the lowest level of phthalates in urine in the eighth month of pregnancy, every child in the highest level of phthalates, their IQ was seven points lower than the other kids. Wow. Seven points. And to people, that doesn't mean anything until you know that a one-point difference in IQ is noticeable. And a seven-point difference is a difference between a child working really hard, getting straight A's in school, top of the class, and a child working really hard, really hard, getting straight C's in school, average at best. This child, whose mother was high in phthalates, doesn't have a chance in hell of ever doing well in school. They don't have a chance. Then you just Google phthalates, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, phthalates, and neurogenesis, nerve growth. Here come the studies. The higher level of phthalates inhibit brain cell growth. So pregnant mom, who had a healthy pregnancy perhaps, didn't know that she's got lots of phthalates in her body from a lifetime of accumulating phthalates, and it was affecting baby's brain development. And they didn't identify until seven years later for these kids. So that's an example of how environmental triggers long-term can be the problem. So that's number two of Professor Fasano's five pillars. And Dr. Stone, while we're talking about phthalates, what are some other ways that people are exposed to phthalates? So you talked about the plastic containers like for food. Yes, nail polish. You put nail polish on in four to five minutes, phthalates are in your bloodstream because it's the phthalates that make the nail polish hard. You say, what? What? And it's a minute amount. It's not enough to make anybody sick, but this stuff accumulates in the body. Children that play with plastic toys all day, phthalates are on the surface of the toys. We're so exposed to this stuff. We live in a world of plastic now. We consider it normal. It's not normal. It's common. It's convenient. It's inexpensive to have plastic silverware, to have plastic containers for your hot soup when you get soup to go from a restaurant or a delicatessen or your coffee, the lids on coffee. You order a hot coffee, put a lid on it, walk out of the coffee shop. The steam from the coffee condenses on the underside of the lid, drips back down in the coffee full of bisphenol A, a plastic. Then you put the cup up to your lips. The hot liquid hits the underside of the lid, tapers down into the opening full of bisphenol A. And so what do you do? You take a stainless steel container to the coffee shop and say, fill it up, please. You don't use their coffee cups and their lids. You have to learn the little things to do to minimize your exposures to all of these toxic chemicals. And it's also in lots of personal care products, the things like shampoos and conditioners as well, isn't it? Exactly. I don't know the numbers now, but last time I checked a couple of years ago, the average woman gets over 53 chemicals on her skin every day. The average man was somewhere around 28. And that's your shampoos and your soaps and the underarm deodorants and the uh, cleansers you use. And we've grown up believing what they told us on television of how wonderful all this stuff is for us. 
And what we're learning is that the, the residue of all this accumulates in the body and autoimmune disease is going up 4 to 9% a year. And the primary contributor to that drastic increase is the amount of environmental triggers we're being exposed to that activate the genes of inflammation, trying to protect you from this toxic stuff. And how would someone test for phthalates? Is that, you said it mentioned a urine test. Is that something that can be easily accessed? That's not easily done. That's uh, really is research looking for phthalates. But there are blood tests that you can do that look to see, is your body making antibodies to toxic chemicals? Is your body making antibodies to bacteria? Is your body making antibodies, excessive amounts of antibodies to viruses? What about to petrochemicals? What about to organophosphates? What about mold? Yeah, especially in England, because so many people live in older homes and they go to restaurants that have been around for 300 years, you know, and things like that. And there's just, there's mold everywhere. And so if there were an important test for most people in Great Britain to do, it would be a test for mold to see, is my immune system excessively fighting mold? Of course, you'll have some antibodies, a normal level of antibodies, but if they're excessive, say, well, I guess this is a problem, creating inflammation. And 14 of the top 15 causes of death are chronic inflammatory diseases. We have recently done an episode on mold disease, which discusses all the testing options available for both inside your home and your body. So for anyone interested in learning more about those testing options, have a listen to that episode, which is available on the CNN podcast website. Okay, so that's number two, the environmental triggers from Professor Fasano's five that they're teaching at Harvard Medical School right now. Number one was your genes. Can't do anything about your genes but you can do a lot about whether you turn up those genes or turn down those genes. Number two, environmental triggers. That's the big kahuna where we really have to explore what am I being exposed to that my immune system is trying to protect me from. That's what's so cool about the immune system is that you've got this dashboard like a high-end performance car has a lot of gauges on the dashboard you know, to check the oil, to check the temperature, to check the fuel, to check the revolutions per minute. You know, you can check all these different gauges in a car. Well, you can do the same thing in your body. What's your immune system doing trying to protect you? What's it trying to protect you from? That's critically, critically important. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM. Still to come, I talk to Dr. O'Brien about which foods to avoid if you have an autoimmune condition, why optimizing gut health is crucial, and the steps you can take to heal the body from autoimmunity. Are you or a loved one struggling with health issues? Would you like to change career and become a natural therapist? CNM offers a wide range of short courses and diploma training, both online and in class. Contact us today for a limited time to save 10% on short courses using the code PODCAST. Visit www.cnmpodcast.com. Okay, number three. So we've got these environmental triggers. And when we're exposed to these environmental triggers unknowingly that create inflammation in our body, the mechanism by which that occurs most of the time is that the vast majority of environmental triggers come in from what's on the end of your fork meaning what we're eating and what we're drinking is the primary trigger, 
the primary exposure to these environmental triggers that are inflammatory. And when you put stuff in the mouth, down the tube, into the stomach, into your gut, you affect the bacteria in your gut. And many people have heard about the microbiome, the environment inside the gut. 70% of your immune system is in the microbiome of the gut. It is our primary protection because for our ancestors, that was the primary source of where they get threats, like bad bacteria. It's in the gut. So our survival mechanism was based on killing anything that got in that shouldn't get in. And so number three of the five pillars is that your immune system in the gut, your microbiome becomes inflammatory. You've got an inflammatory microbiome, too many bad guys, not enough good guys in the gut. And the geek term is dysbiosis, D-Y-S, dysbiosis. It means too many bad guys, not enough good guys. When you have dysbiosis in your gut, that's an inflammatory state in your gut because these bad guys create inflammation in the gut. They activate the immune system trying to protect you. And so you get more inflammation in your gut. Mrs. Patient, your digestive system is a tube. It starts at your mouth and it goes to the other end. It's about 20, 25 feet long, wraps around in the middle there inside your gut. The inside of the tube is lined with Let's see, in Great Britain, I think you call it gauze. We call it cheesecloth. The inside of your gut is lined with gauze so that only really tiny molecules can get into the bloodstream. So you swallow a hamburger. You know, you take a bite of a hamburger. Most of us chew three, four times and swallow. We should chew 10 to 20 times, but we don't. But you chew a couple times and you swallow get this big clump of meat that's now down in your gut. That can't go into the bloodstream. That's not okay. Digestion is the process of our enzymes breaking down that food into really tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces that can go right through the gauze into the bloodstream. And that's digestion and absorption. That's how we're supposed to get all of our vitamins and minerals from the food we eat is that it's got to be broken down first in the gut into tiny, tiny pieces that can fit through the gauze. When you've got inflammation in your gut, the inflammation tears the gauze. When you tear the gauze inside your gut, we call that leaky gut. The technical term is intestinal permeability, leaky gut. When you have leaky gut, bigger molecules of the food that you ate, it can be good food, but bigger molecules now get into the bloodstream through the leaky gut that before they're small enough to get through the gauze, but they get in because the gauze is torn from the inflammation. Now you got these macro molecules, these big molecules in there. And your immune system trying to protect you says, whoa, what is this? This is not something I can use to make new bone cells or brain cells. I better fight this. Now you make antibodies to chicken or to beef or to tomatoes or to raspberries or bananas. It doesn't matter. Any food that gets through the leaky gut, number four of the five pillars, leaky gut, any food that gets through into the bloodstream activates your immune system to protect you 
And now you start making antibodies to that food, and here comes all the inflammation in your bloodstream. Number five, chronic systemic inflammation. Once again, 14 of the top 15 causes of death are chronic inflammatory diseases. This is the primary mechanism by which every single one of them, it occurs. This is what they're teaching at Harvard Medical School right now. When we understand this big picture concept of where chronic systemic inflammation comes from, when we understand this big picture concept, now we're ready to ask the question, how do I reduce the inflammation in my body and for my family? And then you start exploring all this stuff that we're talking about that are in my books. I've got two books that talk about this. The first one's called The Autoimmune Fix, won the National Book Award because it's a really good book. I'm very proud of it because I talk about this concept a lot in there. And the second one is called You Can Fix Your Brain. And it's all about how do you explore where the environmental triggers are coming from, the phthalates, the heavy metals, the mold, the foods. So between those two books, you get a really good big picture. You know, it's going to take you a couple of months to really understand this concept. But when you do, and when you start applying these principles six months down the road, your body's functioning very differently. And your friends who haven't seen say, wow, you look great. What are you doing? Well, I'm actually working on Fasano's five pillars in the development of systemic chronic inflammatory diseases, and I'm noticing the difference. And they look at you, their head turns sideways. What? What did you say? <laughs> you know, but that's something that you can tell somebody in 10 minutes. Definitely not. <laughs> they really need to understand this big picture and then begin the grunt work to find out where are the inflammatory triggers coming from in my body or in my children's bodies. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of the protocols that you discuss in your book, The Autoimmune Fix, shortly. But I just wanted to wind back a little bit just to talk about some of those dietary and lifestyle triggers that cause the inflammation. Now, you did touch on gluten before. Why is it so problematic and how does it affect those with autoimmune conditions? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> do you have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start? There's a couple of basic premises to understand. The first one is that in the world of gastroenterology and identifying that wheat is a problem for some people, they identified one of the proteins in wheat called gluten as the trigger. Now, there are many, many, many different proteins in wheat. And gluten is a family of proteins that are in many different grains, not just wheat. There's gluten in rice, there's gluten in corn, there's gluten in quinoa, there's gluten in rye and barley. It's the family of gluten proteins in wheat, rye, and barley that are a problem for humans. So gluten is actually the wrong term to use. We really should be saying a wheat-related disorder as opposed to a gluten-related disorder. Because when people learn that there's rice and gluten, they freak out. They say, oh my God, I've been eating gluten all this time. And, you know, they, they just didn't know. So that's a first basic premise, is that gluten is a family of proteins in many different grains. And the gluten proteins in wheat, rye, and barley are the problem. The second premise is, okay, what's the problem? And this is hard for people to accept. And that is that 
We have the same body as our ancestors thousands and thousands of years ago. The kidneys work the same. The gallbladder works the same. The immune system works the same as our ancestors 10,000 years ago. The primary goal of our ancestors was to find food. That was number one. Then shelter, safety, and reproduction. Usually in that order, unless it was a horny guy and reproduction came first for a while. (laughs) But food, food was primary importance. And so they'd walk around, they'd follow the herds. Our ancestors were all nomads before 10,000 years ago. That's when agriculture started. Before that, they just kept moving around, following the herds and following where there would be food. They'd find something on the ground. They'd pick it up. The first thing they'd do is sniff it. Then they'd nibble on it. And if there were no alarms that went off in terms of the smell or the taste, then they would eat it. If there were bad bacteria, pathogenic bacteria that they couldn't identify by sniffing or tasting, hydrochloric acid in the stomach usually would kill it, whatever it was. However, sometimes that wasn't the case. And that glob of food, whatever it was they were eating, with the pathogenic bacteria would come out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine. It's called the proximal part of the small intestine. And that's where vitamins and minerals start being absorbed into the bloodstream, not in the stomach. Stomach is just to break it all up, to digest it. And then when it comes into the first part of the small intestine, that's where we have sentries standing guard. The geek term for them are toll-like receptor four. There are nine different toll-like receptors and toll-like receptor two and four are in the first part of the small intestine and other places in the body, but for this discussion, right in the first part. And I think of them as sentries standing guard. I think of the soldiers at Buckingham Palace with those big hats. They stand there all day and they don't move and they look like, oh, they're harmless. But don't mess with those guys. They're dormant. They're not doing anything. Toll-like receptor two and four is dormant in the proximal part of the small intestine. But they're scanning every morsel that comes out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine. They're looking for bugs. And if they see a threatening bug identified by the protein structure of the outer surface of that bacteria, if they see a threat, they immediately activate, within five minutes, they activate leaky gut called pathogenic intestinal permeability. And they activate, sorry for the geek term, NF-kappa-B, the major amplifier of inflammation. So why does toll-like receptor do that? They do that because they've identified a threat to the survival of that person. And so they activate the production of zonulin, the protein that causes leaky gut. And when you get leaky gut, and this happens within five minutes, when you see the videos, they're really cool to watch. It's like, wow, look at this. And this is in humans, these videos. So when zonulin gets produced, it's the protein that opens up the space between the cells on the inside lining of the gut. And when you open up the space, water leaks out of the tissue into the tube of the gut where the food is. And the water comes in to wash out the bug with the poop. 
you know, it's kind of like if you have mud stuck on the driveway of your home, you turn on the garden hose and, you know, you're trying to wash off the mud, but it's dried and caked on there. You have to put your finger over the opening of the hose so you get a spray and then you can wash off the mud more easily. Leaky gut is getting more water into the gut to wash out the threat. That's why we get leaky gut. It saves our life every single day. And those ancestors that didn't have a good response to toll-like receptor 4 to wash out the pathogenic bug that they had identified, if they didn't have a good response, they died and they didn't reproduce. So those that did have a good response of toll-like receptor 4, they survived, they reproduced, their children carried that same genetic capability and passed on through 10,000 years to us today. So leaky gut is actually a life-saving mechanism. Here's the problem. Now, that's what we all have today is that safety measure, but we aren't picking food up off the ground and the likelihood of being exposed to a bad bug is rare. If you go to Mexico or something, it's called Montezuma's Revenge. When you get diarrhea for a few days, you know, your gut feels bad because you got exposed to some bacteria. Well, that's a normal life-saving response from your body to something you ate. Here's the problem. And Maureen Leonard, a famous gastroenterologist at Harvard, published a paper on this in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2017. It was a review of over 60, 60 articles on this topic. And she said that all humans mistake the protein structure of gluten as a pathogenic bug, a dangerous microorganism. This happens in all humans who eat gluten. So the protein structure of the poorly digested wheat molecules, the gluten proteins, and other parts of wheat, but that's another discussion for now, gluten, when those undigested gluten molecules come out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine, the sentries standing guard to save your life recognize that gluten protein as the outer surface of a harmful bug. And they activate zonulin, so you get leaky gut, and they activate NF-kappa-B, the major amplifier of inflammation in your gut. And this happens to all humans who eat wheat, without exception. It doesn't matter how you feel when you eat wheat. This happens within five minutes of wheat coming out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine. So that's usually about two hours, two and a half hours after you eat the food. It's coming out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine. And this happens to every human without exception. And that's hard to understand because, you know, for people because they say, well, I feel fine when I eat pizza. It doesn't matter how you feel. The lucky ones are the ones who feel bad when they eat something because then they know. And then if you keep eating it, well, it's up to you, you know, it's your choice, your health. The unlucky ones don't feel bad when they eat wheat, but the next day they've got a migraine or your child's got a seizure or your joints are worse. When you wake up in the morning, you have a hard time walking to the bathroom, or your psoriasis is worse. 
or it doesn't matter, 14 of the top 15 causes of death in the world today are chronic inflammatory diseases. And gluten and wheat, actually, not just the gluten proteins, but other components of wheat also are gasoline on the fire causing inflammation. The lucky ones are the ones that feel it in their stomach or in their gut when they eat it. The unlucky ones, and and the ratio is eight to one. For every one person that gets gut symptoms when they eat wheat, there are eight people that don't. They get brain symptoms or joint symptoms or skin symptoms, but they don't tie the two together that it came from what they ate because their gut feels fine. That's what's so hard for people to grasp. It's like, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, there's no but. This happens to every human. Just read the science. Now, you know, you're you're diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. You don't get an autoimmune disease until you've had excessive leaky gut for quite a while. You don't get an autoimmune disease. It's the gateway in the development of autoimmune diseases because they're all chronic inflammatory diseases. And once again, this is what they're teaching at Harvard Medical School right now. Thank you for explaining that. As you say, many people believe it's only gut symptoms that appear after eating gluten, not other symptoms like headaches or achy joints, and they wouldn't necessarily put the two and two together. So it's a really important point that you've raised. Critical, critical hormone imbalances, depression, anxiety. There are so just Google gluten and depression and look at the hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, of studies now that say, yeah, sometimes that's the problem. Not every time. But sometimes that's the problem. When you go gluten-free, your depression goes away or your anxiety goes away or your brain fog goes away if that's the weak link in the chain where the inflammation is manifesting. And so what you're saying is over time, continually eating this gluten, the, the leaky gut is getting worse and worse and worse and eventually it can lead to these autoimmune disorders. Exactly. And when you say over time, that's exactly what happens is that the more inflammation you have in your gut because toll-like receptor 4 activates NF-kappa B to kill the threat that's coming in because it determines that wheat is a threat. Over time, that continual inflammation, just imagine most of us eating wheat two or three times a day, every day, that continual inflammation changes your microbiome so that the environment of the gut is an inflammatory environment, which is by itself also contributes to more leaky gut until it's pathogenic, meaning it's there all the time. And that's the gateway in the development of autoimmune diseases. It doesn't matter if it's Hashimoto's thyroid disease or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis. This is the most common mechanism that triggers all of this off. Now, it's not every person, but the percentages are so high Professor Schoenfeld, Yehuda Schoenfeld, Tel Aviv University, the godfather of predictive autoimmunity. This guy is unbelievable in how thorough he is. He just published a paper in March that showed they looked at, um, I'm not sure the exact number, but I believe it was over 70 studies on this topic of gluten and autoimmune diseases. And what they found was that 67% of the people got better on a gluten-free diet, and this was confirmed in 79% of the studies. It didn't matter what autoimmune disease you got, most of the people got better 
on a gluten-free diet. Not everyone, but most of them. That's how common this trigger is. Now, there may be other triggers also contributing to your Hashimoto's or rheumatoid or something, but gluten is a very common trigger because it causes leaky gut every time you eat it. And that's the gateway to systemic inflammation, which fuels the disease that you've got. That's it. And I think it's just one of those hard foods for people to take out. And I think a lot of the time, gluten is hidden in food. So unless you're reading the labels, it's quite easy to consume gluten without realizing it as well, like in sauces and different types of foods. That's exactly right. And that's why it's so critically important. And I'm going to be bold in saying this. Every person in the world needs to take my certified gluten-free practitioner course. Everyone. Because when you spend the 10 hours over the next three months, you don't know, set your own time frame. But when you spend the time on this course, just go to certifiedglutenpractitionergut.com. And you see, wow, I didn't know this. Wow, I didn't know. Wow, I didn't know this. And you learn how to protect yourself and your family because you can't do it on your own. It's overwhelming. Wheat is the most common food eaten in the Western world. It provides 20 to 50% of the calories for everyone in the Western world. So when you give up wheat, you're giving up so much. And then most people just eat gluten-free foods. They substitute gluten-free pasta and gluten-free cookies and gluten-free breads, which tastes pretty good nowadays. It used to taste like cardboard, but now it tastes pretty good. But that food is just garbage. It's not food. You can't just switch out. You have to learn how to eat properly, how to feed your bodies properly. And if you don't and you go on the gluten-free diets that are recommended all the time with gluten-free pastas and breads and cookies and muffins, you're going to get sick. And so our goal this year is that the whole world understands this basic concept. You can't eat gluten-free foods all the time. Now, look, I'm half Italian. I'm going to eat gluten-free pasta every once in a while because I grew up with pasta. But it's a treat once every couple of weeks. You cannot eat that stuff every day. You have to eat wholesome foods every day to feed your body. And that's what you have to learn how to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And especially like the children, they're just, you know, it's toast for breakfast, sandwiches for lunch. It's just, and then as you say, pasta for dinner. And it's just, you know, wheat, gluten, wheat, gluten all day long, really. And I think parents quite often just struggle. What am I going to give them instead? So yeah, we'll definitely pop a, a link in the show notes because I think it's really important. Critically, critically important, critically important. And, you know, for the general public, you know, it's a little geeky. The course is a little geeky, but it's, uh, it, I talk through the entire course the way I'm talking here today. And I use lots of examples for our practitioners because I want our practitioners to teach their patients. So I tell them, you know, use my examples or make up your own, but here's how you have to explain it to people so they understand what a leaky gut is or they understand what gluten is, or they understand what kind of enzymes they have to take to protect themselves. So it's enough in everyday language that the general public will be well-educated after they've done this course. Excellent. What are some foods that commonly contain gluten that people might not be aware of? Beer. Sorry, guys. Mostly guys, but beer is very, very common. It always does because it's made from barley, right? And 
there are some gluten-free beers out there now. But once again, some of the gluten-free beers have gluten in them, inadvertent exposures to gluten. It's contamination. So you can't drink those regularly. But that's very common. Sauces in restaurants. Uh, you know, it's so startling. There's so much to learn. I took my sister to a restaurant in Detroit for lunch one day, and it was a nice a chain restaurant. There may be 10 or 15 of them around the United States called J. Alexander's. And it's a little bit of an upscale restaurant with nice fresh fish and uh, beautiful salads and things. And my sister ordered um, a piece of salmon. And I asked the waiter, I said, how is that salmon prepared? And he said, oh, sir, it's grilled. Uh, sometimes chef adds a little bit of salt to it, but nothing else. It's really fresh and it's just a delicious piece of fish. I said, great. And then it's served on the side with some rice and some uh, sauteed vegetables. Great. Please tell the chef we're gluten-free. Oh, there's nothing on the dish, sir, that's gluten-free. Oh, that's great to know. But please tell the chef. Oh, there's nothing. Please tell the chef. I had to look him dead in the eye and say it three times. And he looked at me and, and was a little miffed that I was so direct with him. And yes, sir, I will. And then he walked away and he came back and said, sir, I must apologize. I'm sorry. I did not know. Chef puts a scoop of flour in the rice to make it stickier. And in three of the five Japanese restaurants where I've done this, the same thing with the waitress. The sushi chef puts a scoop of flour in the rice to make it stickier. So things that you think are okay are not. There's so much to learn like this. It's overwhelming. It really is overwhelming. So you take it a little bit at a time, learn a little bit, learn a little bit more, learn a little bit more, and you feel comfortable and confident eventually that you know how to protect yourself and your family. And it, that's you say, it's education is key, asking questions, reading labels, and not just trusting what someone says. You actually, as you say, you have to probe a little bit deeper and make sure that you get the answers that you need. Exactly. You know, you've got a waiter here. This was like a 22-year-old college student or something, and nice person, you know, and he was confident, you know, because it was rice and vegetables and fish. And he was confident, in, but, you know, he didn't want to bother the chef. You know, who knows what was going on in his head. But you have to stand your ground to protect yourself so that you can feel as safe as possible that you've asked the right people. Or uh, many times I'll ask the manager to come over in a restaurant and explain that we're gluten-free. And sometimes they say, oh, are you a celiac or just sensitive? And I look him in the eye and he say, it doesn't matter. And they look at me and try and smile and say, listen. I'm a world authority on this. I travel the world teaching this. You don't have to have celiac disease to be put in the hospital if you're exposed to wheat. It can happen to anyone. Oh, oh, okay, yes, sir. It's a button for me because waiters and waitresses, it's a common consensus if you don't have celiac that you really don't have a big problem with wheat. And that's not the case. You can be a rheumatoid and it'll lay you up if you're exposed to wheat. You can be MS in remission and your MS comes back. Um, it doesn't matter what the condition is that you're manifesting with. There's a lot to learn on this topic. It's not fair. It's not fair and it's not right that we are having to deal with this because it's the number one food that people eat every day. There's nothing else that's as common in the diet. And it turns out it's not a food for humans. 
No. And I think the challenge is, you know, especially that people are sort of on the road a lot or working everywhere you go for like sort of the convenience food, you know, if you can't prepare something at home, it's all wheat containing foods. And I think exactly that's why people eat so much of it. Exactly. So can you talk us through some other triggers that might be common for many people? Sure. Well, there's a couple of basic premises. I mean, everybody knows that soda pop is not good for you, right? Well, I get sugar-free. Well, sugar-free is worse. It's just all marketing gobbledygook. And it creates obesity. It throws your blood sugar off. It creates diabetes. I mean, all these different conditions because we've grown up believing what they told us on television and the radio that these things are safe and they're good for us. Nonsense. They're not. So we just have to always be asking the question, is this really healthy? Does this grow on planet Earth? Do you see orange juice coming out of the mountains anywhere? No. (laughs) No, you don't. Well, what's wrong with orange juice? It's pure fruit sugar. And there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of orange juice on occasion. But when you give a child eight ounces of orange juice, if that child weighs 30 kilograms and dad weighs 90 kilograms, then you give that child eight ounces of orange juice, that's like dad drinking 24 ounces, three times as much. And dad, just imagine how you feel when you drink uh, 24 ounces of orange juice and see how you feel in an hour. You don't feel so good. So we're doing this to our kids. We're giving them all of these different things that we're told are good for us. No, they're not. No, they're not. Oranges are good for you. A little bit of fruit juice on occasion is not a problem, but excessive amounts of fruit juice regularly are a huge problem. Prepared foods. Prepared foods are full of so many chemicals these days. The chemical industry does not have to prove that something is safe. In the U.S., it's called the Toxic Substance Control Act. And you have to prove that the amount of chemical that you're exposed to in this food is going to cause a problem for you within 24 hours. It's not. There's no evidence to say that these chemicals will cause a problem at these levels within 24 hours. But they're accumulative in your body, like the phthalates that we talked about earlier. Over time, you got a problem. So we need to move in the direction of what grows on planet Earth. Fruits, vegetables, some grains, quality protein, not cheap protein, not lunch meats, quality protein, and fruits and vegetables. Basic primary foods that you want to turn the direction of your health around for you or your child. Your child's diagnosed with attention deficit or they've got recurring seizures or mom's had recurring miscarriages. It doesn't matter what the condition is. You have to turn around the inflammatory mechanisms that are fueling that fire if you want to deal with chronic diseases of any type. So our foods that we want are simple foods. Go back to simple and really important to consider organic, really important, more so than ever before in history. I'll give you one example that relates specifically to reproduction, but the same concept would hold true for brain function or liver function or kidney function. This study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association and arguably one of the premier journals in the English language. And the editors of the journal wrote a comment saying this is an elegant study using sophisticated biomarkers. 
And the editors of the Journal of the American Medical Association don't say that very often at all. So they gave it a stamp of approval, if you will. In the study, they took couples that were going to assisted fertility centers trying to get pregnant. And they ruled out all of the extenuating circumstances like uh, obesity or cigarette smoking, exercise, no exercise. They ruled out all of those features and were able to just look at one contributing factor to success or not. The way they did it was so elegant that the editors of the journal made a comment. This is really well done. And they looked to see the couples that were eating organic or inorganic food at least three times a week, not even every day. And what did they find? And they divided the groups into fourths, the lowest, the next, the third, and the highest organic, the lowest, the next, the third, and the highest conventional. And they compared the outcomes of the assisted fertility center for these couples. What did they find? The highest amount of fruits and vegetables for conventional were 18% less likely to get pregnant compared to the highest amount of fruits and vegetables organic. 18% after spending tens of thousands of pounds trying to get pregnant. 18%. But, and, but here's the kicker. Wow. If they got pregnant, highest amount of fruits and vegetables conventional, they had a 26% less likelihood of a live birth compared to those eating organic. That is unbelievable. Wow. That's like, what? These babies are dying, stillbirths or miscarriages. Yes, eating lots of fruits and vegetables, but conventional. Why? Because conventional fruits and vegetables have so many toxic chemicals, more so now than ever before in the history of humanity. And we're told it's safe for us. Our government's protecting us. No, they're not. And you see studies like this now all the time. So as I said, this example was for reproduction. The same example for brain function and Alzheimer's, the same example for rheumatoid arthritis, the same example for multiple sclerosis. Fruits and vegetables are very important in our diet, but they, so many of them have been poisoned by the amount of chemicals used on them and in the soil that we have to become aware of. It's like, wake up, people, wake up. This is not going to change for the better unless every one of us does the little things to encourage our grocers. When you go shopping for your fruits and vegetables, say, excuse me, do you have organic apples? No, we don't. Well, why not? I'll buy them if you do. And if one person a week does that, nothing happens. But if 20 people a week do that, there was a famous movie in the U.S., Field of Dreams, uh, with Kevin Costner. And the phrase from there is, if you build it, he will come. Mm. Right? It was a great, great movie. If you ask, they will get it because they want to sell fruits and vegetables to you. So if every time you go shopping, you just, excuse me, do you have organic tomatoes? Uh, no, we don't. Well, if you get them, I'll buy them. And if everyone does that, you do that one little annoying, oh, it's going to take me a minute to ask for the vegetable manager. I don't have time for this. If you think like that, you'll keep getting the same result. So you do a little, little thing. Ask for the fruit and vegetable manager. Hi, do you carry organic potatoes? No, I don't. I'll buy them if you get them. And so that's the way you start to make change. You can also go along to your local farm shop or farmer's market, as there's plenty of organic seasonal produce to choose from that is affordable. 
Organic fruit and vegetable box schemes are another great option, especially if you're time poor as the produce gets delivered straight to your door. Okay, so that's the five pillars from Professor Fasano. Genetics, environmental triggers, creates dysbiosis, too many bad guys, none of good guys in the gut, which tears the gauze, leaky gut, which allows those big molecules to get into the bloodstream and now activates the immune system for systemic inflammation. And 14 of the top 15 causes of death are chronic systemic inflammation diseases. So when you deal with this, it helps if you have cancer. It helps if you have diabetes. It helps if you have Parkinson's. It helps if you have cognitive decline. You see, my point here is that it's a line of thinking that every single one of us needs to include as we're looking at a healthier lifestyle for us and our families. Now, talk to us about the autoimmune fix, your targeted protocol, which takes these pillars on board. Now, what are some of the key steps someone can take using this protocol adhering to these pillars? Yeah, sure. The basic premise, and it's really important to understand this, And it's the subtitle of the second book, but it's true for both books. The basic premise is one hour a week allocated to your health. What do I mean by that? When you understand that plastic containers leach their phthalates into the food, what are you going to do? Well, if you go to my book, I give you three URLs to go to to buy glass containers. Glass storage containers. So you go to mileskimble.com, Amazon, and whatever the third one is, I don't remember. And you look at them, you say, oh, those are okay. Oh, I like those. And you order three round ones and two square ones and one for the pie. And you pay the credit card, you hit send. It took an hour to do that, but it's done. You never have to do it again. Now, when the glass containers come, you take the plastic storage containers and you give them to your husband to store nails out in the garage. That's all they're good for, those plastic containers. But now you've got glass containers, but it took an hour to do that. And when you learn that nail polish, you know, the phthalates leach out of nail, and you've got a seven-year-old little girl who, when she was five, she began painting her 10 little fingers and 10 little toes. And you realize, oh my God, I have to get some organic nail polish. And you go online, organic phthalate-free nail polish. And a couple companies come up and you order one, pay with a credit card. It took an hour, but now you're done. You never have to do that again. And when you learn that plastic blinds outgas phthalates into the air and you're breathing that air in the bedroom all night long, every night, and then you start looking for other options for window coverings and maybe you get wood shutters for your windows or some other cotton or wool material for your windows that's safer. It takes you an hour but then you're done for the week. The platform is one hour a week to the best memory, productivity, and sleep you've ever had. That's the subtitle of the second book. But the concept is one hour a week because nobody's got time to change their lifestyle. No one does. But when you do one little thing a week, every single week, say, look, Tuesday nights after dinner or Sunday after services, I'm going to spend an hour. Don't bother me. This is a time that I'm spending so that I can increase the health for the entire family. You do it every single week for one hour and you start learning new things. There's no magic pill. Well, just take this pill and you'll be fine. There's no such thing. 
You have to learn how lifestyle has gotten you to where you are. And then, okay, how am I going to shift this lifestyle and my environmental triggers? How do I do that? One hour a week. That is critically important to understand. Roshi gets so overwhelmed and so frustrated that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You'll go to my website, thedr.com forward slash plant, and you download the handout. It's free from NASA that shows that if you put two six inch house plants in a 10 by 10 room, it absorbs over 70% of the toxins in the air. The plants absorb the toxins out of the air from the flame retardant chemicals on your bedding, the sheets and the blankets that are soaked in flame retardant chemicals that outgas into the air. Now, there's no evidence that the amount of flame retardant chemicals that outgas into the air is toxic to humans. That's how they get away with this, because you have to prove it's toxic within 24 hours. It's not, but it's accumulative over time. And when you get the handout from NASA, here's the plants, and here's the pictures of the plants. And so, oh, I've seen these plants everywhere. Right, mother-in-law tongue, phytus, um, simple houseplants that absorb toxins in the air. And so you go to the store, and if you've got eight rooms in your house, you buy 20 little houseplants. You put them in each room, and they start cleaning the air immediately for you. And then you learn about air filters, and if you can afford one, you get an air filtration system in your house. You just start learning the options one hour a week, and it's going to take you six months to do this. When you approach it from that perspective, you will be successful. It's not going to be another halfway measure with claims of great results. Oh, just take this pill and you're going to be fine. Your energy goes up. Oh, your thyroid will heal if you take nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And there's so many supplements that help. They absolutely are supportive and they help. But they're not going to stop the chronic inflammatory condition until you reduce the environmental triggers activating your immune system, producing that chronic environmental trigger. No, definitely. I think that's the thing, isn't it? If you keep putting fuel on the fire, exactly, the body's not going to heal. You can't just take a pill and keep eating all those foods or, you know, smothering your body in phthalates and breathing in mold. You know, you have to get back to basics and figure out what's going on. Exactly. So going back to air filtration, is there any particular filters you would recommend? Oh, yes. We've been recommending a filter called the Air Doctor. It's on my website. You can find it there for a few years now. And it's been rated number one out of the top 10 air filtration systems in the range of, um, I think it's 350 to $400. And I don't know how that converts to pounds, but not overly expensive. And it's a room filter. And um, what I tell people is put it in your kid's bedroom when they're sleeping. During the day, bring it out into the living room. Just roll it out into the living room. When my daughter bought a new home recently, it was a home built in the 1980s, but it had been completely regutted. They took out everything and they put new foundations, new everything in there two years ago. And then my daughter bought it and I just went, oh, oh my God. Because all those building materials outgas into the air, these toxic chemicals. So what did I do? I bought three air filtration systems for their house because there's the lower level, the main level, and an upstairs for bedroom. 
and the kids play. There's a playroom on the lower level. So my grandkids are not going to breathe all that toxic junk, right? So I, I had three air filters sent to their home. So that's the way you have to think, you know, within the resources you have to allocate to healthier environments, you do the best you can. And the house plants are easy and simple, and it's a great start. And the handout is very clear on how to do it. But that's the concept. When I sign books at book signings, it's always the same. I ask the person their name and I write their name down, and then I write the same thing. In America, there's the game of baseball. And everybody thinks a home run is the best thing when you can hit the ball out of the park and the batter runs around the bases. Home runs don't win ball games. Base hits win the ball game. It's uh, when every member of the team does the little things to help the team. It's just one base. Base hits win the ball game. And that's how I sign my books. Base hits win the ball game. It's all the little things you do that accumulatively will help you win the health game. Reduce your amount of chronic systemic inflammation. I couldn't agree more. And I think pitching it to people is doing one hour a week is manageable. Yes. You know, because I think quite often people get overwhelmed. They don't know where to start. Yes. And especially when people are told they do have an autoimmune condition and they're told that it's not treatable. You've just got to live with it. Yes. People sort of are left feeling hopeless and they don't know where to turn. So, you know, what you're saying is you absolutely can change and heal the body from autoimmune conditions. And it's just taking it one step at a time, isn't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You may have to do some of the standard medical recommendations so that you can function while you're changing your lifestyle. Because this takes time. It's six months to two years. But, you know, if you're diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, you have pain when you're walking and moving your hands. And if I tell you, Mrs. Patient, there's a very good chance that all that pain can go into remission, but it's going to take two years. Are you willing? And if you understand and don't have high expectations, well, I've been taking these pills now for three days. I don't feel any better yet. If you understand that you have to change the direction of your health and that takes time, you're going to win the ballgame. You will get there. It's about the long term, isn't it? And managing expectations and it isn't going to happen overnight for sure. Exactly. And no doctor talks about that because patients want relief now. And patients can be really annoying. They come in to see you and say, I'm no better yet. Well, Mrs. Patient, we started 10 days ago and you've had the psoriasis for nine years. It's going to take a little time. Well, I'm no better yet. You know, so if you have to change your paradigm, once you understand the five pillars in the development of the disease that you have, then you understand why it takes time to turn the momentum around. And Dr. Tom, how would you work with those patients that are on the immunosuppressant drugs like methotrexate or are taking medication and you know they want to come off the medication and do other protocols? How do you manage that? Right, right. There's only one way to do that. And that is you go back to the doctor who recommended these things to you and say, hi, um, these medications are helping a little bit. I've done some research on them. I know that they're not going to erase the disease. But I'm changing my diet. I'm eating healthier. I'm taking a few supplements. I'm exercising a little bit. Would you monitor me? And as I get a little healthier, are you willing to reduce the amount of medication I need to what is currently the amount I need? And every doctor is willing. If they're not, you find a new doctor. 
but every doctor should be willing to do that. You know, we tell patients all the time, now listen, you've been on this high blood pressure medication for quite a while. Now, you go back to your doctor and tell them you're changing your diet, you're starting to exercise, and you believe you're going to get healthier here. And can they monitor you? Because I know if I'm taking too much high blood pressure medication, I can get dizzy and pass out. So would you monitor my dosing of the medication, please? And it doesn't matter what disease you've got. Every doctor should be willing to do that. Once again, if they're not, you find a new doctor. But that's how you deal with the medications. You take them. Absolutely, you take them because you need them right now. But you also understand they're not going to reverse your disease. You need to be active to do that one hour a week. And within six months to two years, our patients usually are off most, if not all, of their medication. That is so inspiring to hear. And you cover more tips in your book, The Autoimmune Fix. So if you are struggling with autoimmune conditions, having a read of the book is a really good place to start. Exactly right. There's like 30 or 40 little tips in there. Uh, You know, for example, you have to clean your shower heads, especially people who have sinus infections, ear infections, throat infections, eye infections. Every time you turn the shower on, you get blasted by millions of bacteria that are living in the shower head. And you have to clean your shower head every six months or so. I mean, there's all these little things that you have to learn. Yeah, that you don't even think about. Right. And they're all in the book. Not all, but everyone that I could think of is in the book. Excellent. And just one quick question, just to finish up. What are your thoughts on the nightshade foods, you know, like potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, and peppers? Because a lot of the time, people with autoimmune conditions are told to avoid those. Yeah, some people have a sensitivity to nightshades. I do. Okra, for me, I'll notice my joints hurt the next day if I eat okra. So you just have to test. There's a test called the lectin zoomer, and it tests the nightshade family. And you'll find if your immune system is fighting the food, stop eating the food. So it's not everyone that has a sensitivity to nightshades, but some people do. And it tends to be a higher percentage of people that have joint problems because the nightshades often affect your joints because of molecular mimicry. Just like the King's College study from 1978, it was molecular mimicry with uh, Klebsiella that was affecting the joints. Nightshade family may have molecular mimicry with the joints. That's pretty common to see. Well, thank you for explaining that. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with us, Dr. Tom. It's been fascinating and so insightful. Now, where can people find more information about you and the work that you do? Oh, thank you. The dr.com, the doctor.com. Just don't spell doctor out, the dr.com. And uh, I guess something that would be very empowering for your listeners. My wife and I traveled to seven countries, interviewed 85 people, the world leaders. I mean, the scientists on autoimmune diseases. And then I interviewed doctors who were following the guidelines of these scientists. And then I interviewed patients of those doctors who followed their recommendations, reversed their MS, reversed their chronic depression, reversed their Lyme disease, reversed their rheumatoid. I'll never forget the gal in London that we interviewed. She was 44. And she said, you know, I took the tube to come here today to this interview. And station is seven blocks away and I walked seven blocks here and she said you know it's not a big deal but then she got teary-eyed and said but it is and then we show you a picture of her two years ago she was in a wheelchair couldn't walk seven lesions on the MRIs in her brain from multiple sclerosis 
Now she has no symptoms whatsoever, and there's only two lesions left on her brain, and she has no symptoms. That whole docu-series is called Betrayal. And if you go to the dr.com forward slash betrayal, you can watch the entire series. Over a million people have watched it now. And it's free. It's all free. But you see people that said, you know, I started doing this one thing, one hour a week thing. And, you know, I just started taking little baby steps. And eventually my Lyme disease was gone and I got my energy back and I'm back with my family again and, and living life more fully. You know, you see study after study from the scientists and then case after case of the people applying this. And it empowers you. It encourages you to do a little more of this one hour a week concept. You know, just take baby steps and you'll get to where you want to go. Oh, that's so inspiring. And I think that will help so many of our listeners because there are so many people that are struggling with autoimmune conditions and yes. not having any resolve or not knowing where to turn for help. So thank you for sharing that. And for all your information and, and knowledge today, it's been invaluable. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Tom. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Dr. Tom O'Brien for sharing his wealth of knowledge and experience with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Dr. O'Brien in the show notes on the CNN website at www.cnnpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about nutrition, herbal medicine, or detoxification, check out CNN's range of short courses and diplomas on our website at www.naturopathy-uk.com. We have a series of open events coming up and you can find all the details on the website under the events section. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.